This podcast is sponsored by Talkspace. May is Mental Health Awareness Month, and Talkspace, the leading virtual therapy provider, is encouraging people to talk it out in therapy. By talking or texting with a supportive, licensed therapist at Talkspace, you'll gain insights, discover truths, and experience breakthroughs that will improve how you live and how you feel. With Talkspace, just answer a few questions online, and you'll be matched with a therapist. And because you'll meet your therapist online, you don't have to take time off work or arrange childcare. You'll meet on your schedule, whenever you feel most at ease. Plus, Talkspace works with most major insurers, and most insured members only pay a $25 copay or less. No insurance? No problem. If you want to make progress toward a mentally healthier place, Talkspace is here for you. Now get $80 off your first month with promo code SPACE80 when you go to Talkspace.com. Match with a licensed therapist today at Talkspace.com. Save $80 with code SPACE80 at Talkspace.com. This episode of King of the World contains information about suicide, which may be upsetting to some people. If you're thinking about suicide or would like emotional support, the Suicide Prevention Lifeline Network is available 24 hours a day, seven days a week across the United States. Just call 1-800-273-8255. And now, to the episode. Before he became the so-called godfather of Pakistani mixed martial arts, for your winner, by submission, Bashir Sobchai Bashir Ahmed was a suburban brown kid just like me. Although he was born in Pakistan, Bashir's family moved to Northern Virginia when he was just two years old. So it's right outside of D.C. And so it was quite diverse, you know, like lots of different immigrants from random places, right? Not the European immigrants, like, you know, not Chinese immigrants, but like Cambodia, Laos, Vietnam, Pakistan, Afghanistan. His Virginia suburb was pretty different from Acton Boxborough. The two towns we combined and called A.B., on the outskirts of Boston. My class, for example, in kindergarten, maybe 80% white. Oftentimes, maybe I would be the only Muslim or maybe one other Muslim, but it was never like, I'm the only like brown person. Bashir is exactly one year older than me. Technically 365 days and like 36 hours if we're gonna go there. So my senior year of high school was at the same time as his freshman year at Virginia Commonwealth University. And kind of like me, his first attempt at college wasn't going well. A few days before 9-11, he was kicked out of his dorm for smoking weed. So he found himself crashing on friends' couches, trying to act like everything was fine. It's safe to say he was a little stressed at this point. Like, how was he going to come clean to his parents? What was he going to do now? And then, when the attacks happened, with the added anxiety of being a Muslim in America during the non-stop post-9-11 news cycle... He basically couldn't get out of bed. I don't necessarily know if I felt like worried for like myself, but like, are people going to react to me being a Muslim? Maybe feel a bit more paranoid. It's like, are people looking at me as they walk down the street? Paranoia sums it up pretty well, actually. Being an American Muslim in this new post 9-11 age was super tough. We all were immediately reminded exactly just where we stood in this country. When I say where I'm from, oh, Pakistan, you mean that place that's right next to Afghanistan? You know, where Al-Qaeda, like, staged their attacks, you know? So there, there's obviously just, a, you know, you kind of feel the, the country's eyes now all, like, you know, looking at you from that uh, moment onwards. Bashir decided to turn his life around. He felt like he'd already wasted his parents' money once. So, like so many other American kids looking for a way to pay for college, he decided to join the National Guard. Adventure helping service in the 
Army National Guard. Bashir was super into history, especially military history. And he figured he could easily handle the one weekend a month, two weeks a year requirements. Maybe, he thought, this could give him some discipline and motivation too. But when he showed up for his first monthly drills... The way I can describe it is like police academy. Yeah, he's definitely talking about that police academy, the 1984 comedy cult classic film. Son, where did you get this gun? My mom gave it to me. Okay, this is not what I expected the army to be like. There was very few people there that were like, yeah, I'm joining the army because I love discipline. And it was just like, man, I got this girl pregnant and like I need something to do. Or, you know, it's just like no one was serious about anything. I, I asked them, I, this must have been my first day there. It's like, have you ever guys ever been deployed? And they started laughing. They're like, we get lost get trying to make it to the highway. And so I was like, oh man. So Bashir figured maybe things wouldn't be so bad. He'd probably never see combat and could just coast along for the next few years as he finished his enlistment duty, graduate without crippling college debt, and live out his family's American dream. He had no idea that he would soon be an American Muslim soldier on the other side of the world, grappling with his sense of self and struggling to reconcile what he was feeling inside with his mission and what he saw around him. From Rafaelian Media, I'm Shah Jahan Khan, and this is King of the World, a historical, cultural, and personal look back at the 20 years since 9-11. Episode 2, Terrifying Wars. When you turn 18 in America, you're considered an adult. You can buy lottery tickets, register to vote, get a tattoo, or even change your name. Six days before my 18th birthday, on October 7th, 2001, President George W. Bush announced the start of Operation Enduring Freedom and that the United States had begun dropping bombs on Afghanistan. On my orders, the United States military has begun strikes against al-Qaeda terrorist training camps and military installations of the Taliban regime in Afghanistan a place I've never been, but that's loosely where my people came from, at least in a historical sense. My family actually originates from a tribe called the Gakezes that settled in an area on the border between Pakistan and Afghanistan. This was the beginning of the so-called American War on Terror. America is only just withdrawing from Afghanistan, 20 years later, literally as I'm speaking these words. However, the War on Terror is still an amorphous, abstract thing, not really one specific war, but a sort of post-9-11 war framework that has given the U.S. and its allies a blank slate to consistently be in a state of offense. It has been and continues to be mostly waged against Muslim people in Muslim-majority countries. But it began in Afghanistan in the fall of 2001, my senior year of high school, with the hunt for Osama bin Laden and al-Qaeda, the masterminds of the 9-11 attacks. The leadership of al-Qaeda has great influence in Afghanistan and supports the Taliban regime in controlling most of that country. The U.S. and Afghanistan's relationship goes pretty far back. Believe it or not, there was a time when we armed the group that would later become the Taliban, called the Mujahideen. In the 1980s, the U.S. actually hailed them as freedom fighters in their fight against a Russian invasion. Here's then U.S. President Ronald Reagan at a press conference from that time. The support that the United States has been providing the resistance 
will be strengthened rather than diminished so that it can continue to fight effectively for freedom. A just struggle against foreign tyranny can count upon worldwide support, both political and material. After kicking out the Soviets and engaging in a four-year civil war, the Taliban emerged as the leaders in Afghanistan in the mid-1990s. They instilled a very tribal, local, and brutal interpretation of Islam, one that is very unrecognizable to most other Muslims across the world and across history. Immediately following 9-11, the Bush administration, and arguably the American public, was seeking some sort of swift justice. President Bush tried to force the Taliban to hand over Osama bin Laden, who was now based in Afghanistan, and whose organization known as Al-Qaeda had claimed responsibility for the attacks. Because the Taliban didn't respond to the U.S.'s ultimatum to hand over bin Laden, we began bombing the whole country. There's no need to discuss innocence or guilt. We know he's guilty. Turn him over. If they want us to stop our military operations, they just got to meet my conditions. And when I said no negotiations, I meant no negotiations. Bin Laden would remain at large for another 10 years and eventually be killed in Pakistan by U.S. Navy SEALs during the Obama administration. After 9-11, a new generation of Americans were given a glimpse into Afghan society, where we were told terrorists hid in caves, plotted attacks, and oppressed women. And that's really all anyone would know, unless they dug deeper than the evening news. Individuals don't really understand how the country was subjected to very different ideological regimes. That's Dr. Homa Gupta, a historian of cities and architecture in Southwest Asia and South Asia, and MIT's newest lecturer in the Agricultural Program for Islamic Architecture. You have a monarchy in place. Then you have the Soviet invasion. And then you have the Taliban come. And then you have the U.S., government and U.S. occupation. The culture has changed a lot, and it, and it continues to change. Huma has spent a lot of time in both Afghanistan and Iraq. What I think I really appreciate about my friends who grew up in Afghanistan in those decades is that they have tremendous insight and understanding into the inconsistencies, the hypocrisies, and the limitations of all of these ideological systems, right? And how they have been applied to Afghanistan in practice. Afghanistan's been like a world power staging ground for generations and has been subjected to routine foreign interference. Beyond just the US and Russia, India, Pakistan, Saudi Arabia, Iran, and China have all been accused of using proxy forces to gain influence in Afghanistan. My friends talk about how you know, their school curriculum changed dramatically over the course of 20, 30 years, right? As they were growing up, they were first being taught math problems through sort of Soviet models and references, right? And then suddenly they're being taught through like Taliban kind of references of like, you know, what's five AK-47s plus five AK-47s. And then suddenly you have the U.S. occupation and then the curriculum changes again. It's fascinating to think about how much national identity is a result of schooling and education and how in a single generation, Homa's Afghan friends basically couldn't recognize their country anymore. We learned nothing of this history at AB. And while my dad would try to tell me stuff about Afghan, Pakistani, and Muslim history, it didn't seem relevant to me until this part of the world my so-called part of the world, 
was in the news constantly after 9-11. Not that it isn't these days, but patriotism was at like an all-time high during my senior year. And I just didn't really identify with it in the same way as it seemed like the rest of America did. Ever since the disaster, a wave of patriotism has been spreading across America. America is united. We are strong. We are stronger than ever. From blood drives to passing out freedom ribbons. If it's anything red, white, and blue, it's going to sell. As the bombs began to fall in Afghanistan at the end of 2001, I already felt like I was being pulled in a lot of different directions. I barely graduated. And though I'd participated in all the normal stuff like prom and senior dress-up day, I still was super confused about who I was and where I was heading. About what my place would be in this new America. So I think identity is how you perceive yourself. It's every, all the different outside factors, all the social realities, um, family members, friends, all these different things are coming into play as to how you perceive yourself. Rania Mustafa is the executive director of the Palestinian American Cultural Center in New Jersey, the kind of place that, among many other things, helps folks struggling to figure themselves out. There's a lot of different identities that each of us have or different spheres or roles that we play into, right? So you have the conflicted identity, which basically means, let's say, Arab-American. I have my world that's Arab and I have my world that's American, and I just can't see how the two even work together. And then you have your parallel identity where you have Arab-American I am in these settings, in these specific spheres, I'm Arab. In these settings, in these specific spheres, I'm American. Just to be clear, Pakistanis are not Arabs. The term Arab refers to an identity based on culture and language. So not all Arabs are Muslims. Not all Muslims are Arab. And then the last one, which is the healthiest, is integrated, which basically is where you have both of those identities and you feel like you can be Arab-American in this sphere that is predominantly filled with Arabs, and you can be Arab-American in this sphere that's predominantly filled with just Americans. But the goal is that you're integrated where you don't see, for example, being Arab is not contradictory to being American, and being American is not contradictory to being Arab, and instead it's kind of like an integrated marriage that resulted with you in your identity. I never felt integrated growing up, and certainly not in the years after 9-11. And At least from the conversations I've had with folks, many American Muslims felt the same way. That paranoia Bashir described was real. The American Muslim identity and its supposedly conflicting loyalty to regular American identity was being questioned constantly. Where are all the good Muslims? Will the moderate Muslims please stand up? We were having to answer for and defend ourselves against every bad thing that was happening everywhere in the world. And our paranoia was about more than just words. Our places of worship and community centers were also being attacked. After 9-11, we have to think about it, that mosques were vilified a lot of times, and people were seeing it as a place that was breeding terrorism, while in fact it was actually probably mitigating terrorism. Rania's research shows religious settings are key for American Muslims to think through questions of identity, the types of stuff I was dealing with. Automatically, when something like that happens, you're put into question. You know, now a Muslim is being painted as this. Now everyone's calling this Muslim terrorist. You're actually then faced with this 
need to answer and speak up on behalf of all Muslims around the world. Now, if I don't have this religious setting or, or, you know, supportive setting in general to kind of understand what happened and how does my identity come into question, then I can in turn internalize it and then end up not understanding my identity fully and in turn kind of blaming myself or blaming my identity or even divorcing myself of my identity, saying, you know, that's not, if that's what Muslims are, then I don't want to be a part of it. Community engagement and collective support allowed many American Muslims space for reflection and the strength to build a strong identity. To get to a point where they could say, whatever happened is not who we are. It's not what we believe. And then the question comes, what can I do to educate people and have them come to that same realization? So again, it's, it's very interesting kind of seeing that um, because it's, it's the healthiest way specifically for adolescents, which is when you know, identity is really put into question and when identity is formed. Mosques really did become a key community gathering space, and not just for Muslims. It felt like every mosque or Muslim organization was doing interfaith stuff or holding open houses in a desperate attempt to prove that it's not us, man, we're just like you. My dad remembers it this way at our family mosque in Massachusetts. From that point onwards, there was a constant struggle going on at the center as to how to deal with the consequences of what has happened because of this 9-11. There was an impact on the community as a whole. The local town had sent police vehicles over there. Uh, they are all quite sensitive to the fact that this is an Islamic center and it could be in danger. To his credit, Aga is someone who can't help but see the good in people. Our mosque was surrounded by a progressive interfaith community, folks that are still a source of support for him today. Our neighbors started to come. And literally a couple of hundred people came from our neighborhood. And their people were bringing with them flowers and things and messages. Don't worry, you are safe, we are with you, we will help you out. No matter how bad things got for us after 9-11, Aga took it upon himself to be that moderate Muslim voice, giving interviews in local newspapers, on the local news, and even encouraging me to write about moderation in Islam in my college essay. I'm guessing he was secretly worried my grades were so shitty no school would take me. So that's what I did. Meaning, I copy and pasted what he wrote into my college application. And I eventually got into UMass Amherst. A lot of families probably feel mixed emotions about dropping their first kid at college. In my case, due to an already difficult high school experience, there was an extra layer of worry that permeated the Ford Windstar as we drove the 90-minute route towards Amherst at the beginning of the fall 2002 semester. I remember like when we went to go drop you off at college, I remember that being a big deal. My sister, Nuna. And I remember like on the car ride home, I'ma put a blanket over her head and she wept in the back seat <sighs> and that was very dramatic. Nuna's right about my mom's tendency to worry about stuff. But to Amma's credit, I was definitely the kind of kid that kept her up at night. I don't know whether you remember or not, but I had a dream about it, that you're going to be lying in a ditch. I said this. Lying in a ditch was the word I used. Till then, I didn't even know that you were doing something crazy stuff. I don't know I, why I said that. And I don't know whether it was a dream or whether it was my own brain working on me, but that's what I said. She had every right to be worried. Remember... This was only one year after she was trying to comfort me after my first real experience with overt racism and xenophobia. Likewise, nearly 60% of American Muslims said we faced an act of bias or discrimination that year. 
and nearly half of us felt our lives had changed for the worse since 9-11. So, I don't know, maybe, like, every Muslim parent was on edge? But I was an adult now. It was a new school year, and I was going to college, so there was nothing to worry about, right? The fall 2002 semester would mark the one-year anniversary of 9-11. The war on terror was in full swing. The U.S. had overthrown Afghanistan's government in just a few months and helped install a new head of state named Hamid Karzai, while Pakistan, under the military dictatorship of General Pervez Musharraf, was seen as our strongest ally against terror. My thought process was uh, basically the interest of my own country, the national interest of Pakistan, and the security of Pakistan. But there was definitely skepticism about what America's true agenda was in the region. We understand you have advisors who are urging you to go after Iraq, take out Iraq, Syria, Syria, and so forth. Do you really think that the American people will tolerate you widening the war beyond Afghanistan? Our focus is on Afghanistan and the terrorist network hiding in Afghanistan right now. But as well, we're looking for al-Qaeda cells around the world. If we find an al-Qaeda cell operating and... Uh, we will urge the host country to bring them to justice, and we're having some progress. We're making progress. Now that I was out of the house, I decided I was going to totally reinvent myself. And I'd start by being someone that didn't move over on the sidewalk and instead expected others to move for me. I'm not sure where I got that idea, but it felt like it would help me build up the confidence that I was lacking. Well, that new shajwalk lasted about three days. It was pretty clear that starting over was going to be harder than I thought. It turned out that I was housed in a multicultural dorm with people from all over the world. Sounds wonderful, right? Well, it should have been. But there was an immense pushback within me as soon as I moved in. One that I now understand as a very conflicted identity. Even an internalized racism rooted in white supremacy. I was used to being the only version of me so that I could neatly separate my different identities. American, Muslim, Pakistani. And suddenly, something was wrong. For the first time in my life, I wasn't only surrounded by white people. I wasn't just the exception. A couple of days into the semester, I was eating lunch with a half-Indian, half-white kid who straight up asked me, wouldn't you agree that most of the problems in the world are caused by Muslims? That's how he said it. Here was another kid asking me another piercingly direct question, putting the weight of the so-called Muslim world on my shoulders, just like that asshole from senior year of high school. But this time, he was, well, sort of a brown guy like me. What the fuck? He went on to complain about our dorm and how there were too many minorities and that he was trying to move out. I tried my best to be like, well, actually, it's complicated. But I felt ashamed for not having more answers. and. To be perfectly honest, for also wanting to move out of the dorm myself for the same reasons he did. Rania, the expert on identity whom we met before, noticed a shift in herself during this time as well, but seemed to be able to draw strength from a clear sense of self and purpose. So after 9-11, there was a huge emphasis on my identity as being an American Muslim, and we were always taught that you're an American, you have rights, you have, um, you should be proud of the fact that you're American. There's a lot of different privileges that you hold because you're American. So growing into college, I was very much a proud American Muslim. Like it never, 
um, occurred to me that people would not see me as such. But going to college, she found herself, like me, out of her usual bubble. And I found out that a lot of people, unfortunately, don't perceive me as American. Um, so then that started having me question, what does it mean to be American? And how do I handle this? So the way I internalized it is actually that I am American and that people don't understand what it means to be American. So I have to educate others um, to understand what it really means to be American and to see that I do not actually contradict what it means to be American. I'm actually very much the epitome of it. A lot of Muslim American kids like Rania found purpose and meaning in activism at this time. It helped them to bridge these divides in their identities. I, on the other hand, basically malfunctioned any time I would try to think about the different parts of myself. When it came to other Pakistani students, or the Muslim students, or the Desi things, or the Muslim things, like the student clubs and associations, none of it fit right. I wasn't inspired by my courses, or taking risks, or exploring the things I might be passionate about, like so many people do while they're at college. I wasn't expressing myself there because I didn't know who I was. The only self-expression that had ever made sense to me was guitar playing. But I was too scared to start another band after my high school band broke up. And really, was playing the guitar going to take me anywhere in life? My days were now reduced to hiding out in my dorm, smoking tons of weed, and trying my best to stay away from people. My heavy cannabis use was at an all-time high. I couldn't get out of bed without smoking. I was skipping all my classes, seeing the school nurse regularly for anxiety and appetite issues, and literally staying up all night to get stoned and watch a music visualizer on my computer by myself. Fucking Winamp. I became that guy people would get high with and then go do whatever else they had to do. I was a horrendous roommate, student, and friend. Really, no different from that caricature of high school Shah Jahan. Just a year older. My 19th birthday came and went that October, as things continued to look bleak. I was depressed, anxious, overwhelmed. I'd started going home most weekends, and it was on one of these visits, around Thanksgiving of 2002, that I decided to come clean to my parents about everything. About how I felt awful every single day. I couldn't put two plus two together, because I just didn't know what was going on. And things just kept going worse. Tell you yourself one day, told us that you needed to see somebody. This wasn't an easy conversation for us to have, and was probably my first real moment of honesty with my folks, who didn't come from a time or place where it was normal or acceptable to discuss these types of feelings. I still remember the way we were sitting in the living room, my parents on two chairs by the fireplace, photos of my grandparents up on the mantel above, only one of two ceiling floodlights on. My folks went into parenting overdrive. My dad decided that rather than continue to live on campus where they thought the bad stuff was going on, I was going to live at home. He was going to drive me those 90 minutes to my classes from our house every day. I saw our family doctor right away, who put me on my first round of antidepressants and recommended a therapist who added a little anti-anxiety medication to the mix. I started to see that therapist weekly. It was nice enough to talk to him, but... I honestly didn't have that much faith that he could help me feel happy after years of being shrouded in sadness. And although he tried his best to bring the identity piece into therapy as well, as much as a white dude could, I suppose, 
it created more conflict. I would come home from sessions feeling like I was weird, that my parents weren't normal white parents since I had to hide dating and stuff from them, and that maybe their arranged marriage was really the thing that had been fucking with me for years. I promised everyone that I wasn't going to get high anymore, but I literally kept that promise less than 24 hours. My mom remembers that first day they chauffeured me to campus. Oh my God. We brought you over there and then you said, I'll be back in a minute. And you went to see somebody and you came back and you were fully stoned. The first day. And it didn't get better. And I would just take you and drop you at the college and then I'll come and pick you up from there, bring you back home. Uh, Sometimes you just will not meet me there and I'll just have to wait. but there's several instances in which I'll just, I remember waiting in the parking lot for two, three, four hours. The truth is, I was getting high while my dad was waiting for me. It's really hard to say that now, and when I was asking him about it, I kind of felt like a piece of shit. But it was definitely the most important thing in my life at that point. The ritual of smoking weed was almost just as important as the effect. Breathing in the smoke in long, deep breaths was like drawing in a sense of safety and security, and then exhaling all the negative stuff in my head and body. It's hard to tell exactly if I was addicted at this point. I feel like it's a bit more complex, and the word addiction may be the wrong way to think about it, but it had absolutely been my main coping mechanism for years. And it was hard to stop. Although I wouldn't have exactly thought of it like this, my dad drew a direct connection to my problems then, with what happened to me my senior year of high school, when those kids harassed me after 9-11. And that's something that happened immediately to us, you know. And that did have an impact on you. You were quite depressed for a long time. And that essentially was one cause of the problems that you ran into later on. I don't know if I would have allowed myself to connect these two things until I started putting this show together. 9-11 did force me to confront many things that were already bubbling at the surface. And I'm not saying I wasn't affected by what happened that day at AB. I absolutely was, and have talked about the actual incident many times. Yet something about suppressing memories of what happened to me in the days and weeks after 9-11, even after years of therapy, makes me wonder what other stuff I've pushed aside. In terms of what happened to me at the end of 2002, though, it probably makes a lot of sense. This 19-year-old man in the first semester at UMass Amherst was admitted to the emergency department for evaluation and treatment of depression and suicidal ideation in the setting of heavy marijuana use. The patient felt so hopeless Saturday night, he took clonopin pills in a suicide attempt. At that point, he came to the emergency department with his parents, but signed out against medical advice. Due to the decreasing acuity of this suicidality, and his concern about separation from his family. Parents are both Pakistani-born Muslims. Father came to the United States for graduate studies and stayed. Both parents are now United States citizens. This patient is the oldest of three. There is no clear history of alcohol or drug abuse in the family, although he is not sure. There is also no history of depression, 
or other mental illness. The patient was alert, oriented, personable, and expressing clear, low self-esteem. It's 10 days before Christmas 2002, and I'm lying in an ER bed at Emerson Hospital in Concord, Massachusetts. I've just come back to consciousness. I'm holding my dad's hand. I'm numb, pissed, and embarrassed that I woke up. What you just heard is my actual emergency room transcript. And damn, it really brings me right back. It's wild how they pretty much summed up my entire life at that point so succinctly. Just a few hours prior, I had made what seemed like the only reasonable decision. To take my own life, because as far as I was concerned, it really wasn't a life worth living anymore. I remember standing in the bathroom with the pill bottle and feeling relieved that I was finally making a permanent decision. Something that's common with folks who attempt suicide. I'd been feeling small and powerless for years, without any sense of agency over my life, and instead of opening new doors, going to college had completely shrunk me into a terrified shell of the person I used to be. It wasn't like high school, where even if I was high all the time, something about it felt safe and familiar. Now I was terrified of meeting new people who might want to get to know me, because I felt like, deep down, I had nothing to offer anybody other than maybe a weed buddy. Here's Ronnie again. I think self-esteem is a way that we can actually measure identity because it's kind of like the way you see is your pride or your comfort in expressing this identity. So that's how it kind of ties into each other. You know, for example, if you have high self-esteem in this specific identity, then you also hold high pride. You're willing to practice different culture, cultural practices, different traditions and hold that specific identity in high esteem. Um, while if you had low self-esteem, it'd be the opposite. You'd be questioning your identity, not understanding the different parts of identity, thinking that's not part of who you are. Um, also not wanting to practice the different traditions of identity, trying to distance yourself from that identity, which then in turn, you know, ends up affecting you. Because for example, like then when you're in spheres where people are questioning that part of your identity, you tend to shrink. In less than a week, my friends from high school will be back in town for the holiday break. Most of them seem to be doing pretty great, becoming legit adults. And here I am, at the lowest point of my life, with doctors telling me that I shouldn't go home, that I should check into the psychiatric unit. So that's what I did. Being in the psych ward is a pretty eye-opening experience for me. I feel really strange at first because there are people here with severe mental illnesses and opiate addictions, real problems, not like me. I think at the time. I'm just a confused teenager that smokes too much weed and got super sad one night and, you know, did something stupid. But before long, I'm taking a hard look at my life for the first time ever, without weed, and admitting that maybe, just maybe, whatever I've been doing thus far hasn't been working all that great. I'm introduced to AA and NA meetings. I get a counselor, psychiatrist, and I do start to get better. I'm eventually grateful to still be alive, to be given a second chance. I do really well in all my group therapy sessions, make friends with the staff and the other patients in the ward, and even have sort of a treatment girlfriend who I play ping pong with every night. 
and my roommate ends up being an older Egyptian Muslim man with a severe drinking problem, likely the first Muslim person I've ever openly discussed addiction with. He shares his Marlboro Light cigarettes with me on our smoke breaks, and I'm thankful to him for allowing me to feel a little more normal for the first time in a long time. My parents come every single day, usually bringing food as they try their best to hide their tears. Then there was, I believe this was when you were, then we joined this group, you know, Alcoholics Anonymous, and they will go to the meeting. you'll go to the meetings, and several times me and Amma joined those meetings. Uh, we'll just sit together, and people, individuals, will, will talk about what's their own problems, you know, and then everybody will speak. Uh, I don't think that we said any, I don't recall me talking. We basically were just listening as the parents, you know. As the end of my hospital stay approaches, my dad floats the idea of trying school again, this time as a commuter to the local UMass campus in Lowell, Massachusetts, not too far from home. It seems like 2003 could be the fresh start I was hoping for. The year that started in a psych ward for me was also the start of the war in Iraq, a.k.a. the Second Persian Gulf War, a.k.a. Operation Enduring Iraqi Freedom. Yeah, okay. It was a sort of follow-up to the Afghanistan invasion, the next chapter in the War on Terror, but unlike Afghanistan, not as easily tied to 9-11. So the American public needed to be convinced that President Saddam Hussein was an imminent threat. Quick review of America in 2003. George W. Bush was president. Remember, his dad, George H.W. Bush, tried to oust Hussein in the early 90s during the first Gulf War. Dick Cheney was VP. He was also the CEO of Halliburton, one of the world's largest oil companies, up until he became VP. And Donald Rumsfeld was Secretary of Defense. You might call them the Muslim world's own axis of evil. Here's historian Dr. Hamagupta again. So there has been decades of complicity with the Saddam Hussein regime on the part of the United States. But when Saddam Hussein started to make decisions that countered the regional security interests and economic interests of the U.S., there was a sudden reversal of the position of Iraq as a key ally in the so-called Middle East. In a now infamous speech to the United Nations, then-Secretary of State Colin Powell warned the world about the horrors that were looming if Saddam Hussein was left to his own devices. For example, they can produce anthrax and botulinum toxin. In fact, they can produce enough dry biological agent in a single month to kill thousands upon thousands of people. And dry agent of this type is the most lethal form for human beings. Sounds serious, right? It turned out Powell was promoting flawed intelligence from several Iraqi defectors and exiled politicians who were looking to get the U.S. to invade Iraq. You know, like legitimately fake news. There were, of course, awful human rights abuses, violations, massacres conducted by Saddam Hussein. Unfortunately, Those were not the primary reasons for the war. Those people pushing for war with Iraq were basically comparing what Saddam Hussein was doing there with what was happening in Afghanistan. As if Saddam's regime was similar to the Taliban, as if we could paint the entire region of Southwest Asia, North Africa, 
Central Asia with one broad brushstroke and all of these people thought and lived in the same way. For many Americans, war is a thing that happens somewhere else and the U.S. is mostly justified when we start one. There were very distinct differences between Iraq and Afghanistan, but there was a presumption that the vast majority of Americans seemed to buy into that that what was being told to them was in fact the truth. Along with UK Prime Minister Tony Blair, the US pressed on, saying that Iraq was hiding weapons and not following UN Security Council inspections and regulations. But the inspectors themselves were like, yo, we need more time, we aren't done. States like these and their terrorist allies constitute an axis of evil arming to threaten the peace of the world. By seeking weapons of mass destruction, these regimes pose a grave and growing danger. The so-called inspection deadline of March 19, 2003 came and went, and 48 hours later, the invasion began. This hour, American and coalition forces are in the early stages of military operations to disarm Iraq, to free its people, and to defend the world from grave danger. In a Pew Research Center survey done after the war started, majorities in four Muslim nations said they doubted the sincerity of the war on terrorism. They said that it was just a way to control oil in the Middle East and to dominate the world. That was the sense for a lot of American Muslims as well, who have seen this story play out again and again in Muslim-majority countries. I mean, the U.S. was pretty forthright and brazen in its approach and propaganda. The president this morning has spoken with three foreign leaders. He began with Prime Minister Blair, where the two discussed the ongoing aspects of Operation Iraqi uh, Liberation. That's White House Press Secretary Ari Fleischer, in the early days of the war, referring to it as Operation Iraqi Liberation. O-I-L. Oil. As fucked up and incompetent as the Bush administration was, it's hard to believe that no one caught that. The Iraq invasion sent a powerful message to other countries in Southwest Asia, right, that the U.S. was willing to strike, the U.S. was willing to wage an illegal war in order to discipline dissenters. The Iraq war was thus not a war fought just for oil. It was fought for hegemony. It created an opening for the United States to go in and secure their interests and to essentially facilitate a regime change and put someone else in power that would be far more susceptible to what they wanted in the region. The point of public relations slogans like support our troops is that they don't mean anything. They mean as much as whether you support the people in Iowa. Of course, there was an issue. The issue was, do you support our policy? But you don't want people to think about the issue. That's the whole point of good propaganda. This was the start of all those yellow support our troops magnet bumper stickers on people's cars, which I saw as reductive and really simplistic. Part of the whole you're with us or against us vibe. It was uncomfortable from an identity standpoint because on the one hand, what was my relationship to Iraq? Since when did I become someone that cared about the so-called Muslim world? One night at a party in Acton, I got super drunk, went outside, and ripped those stickers off of a few cars that were in the driveway. I can't put that feeling into words. Maybe it was a combination of being the only brown person there 
and feeling like something was wrong with me and that I wasn't doing enough to condemn what was going on. I felt helpless. This was right before we were going to get deployed to Iraq. They had like the entire battalion, right? And there was me and there was like two other guys to talk about Islam to everybody else. Remember Bashir Ahmed, who we met at the beginning of this episode? Well, his chill National Guard enlistment to pay for college was no longer a fantasy version of police academy anymore. Like we're like the lecturers. And we're all, I'm looking back, I'm like, man, we were a bunch of like these three dumbasses who didn't know anything, right? Wow. Yeah, yeah, you know, and, and, and I can see the benefit in that because at least maybe it can be like, okay, well, it's, it's humanizing. These are, look, these are our fellow soldiers, you know, they're also Muslim and they're, you know, get, uh, t- talking to us about Islam and, you know, but at the same time, to put us in a position where we're like, you know, the, the experts. It's a lot of pressure. Yeah, yeah. so uh, that, that's kind of uh, really, uh, before going to Iraq, kind of sums up the experience of being a Muslim uh, in the army. And then he was there, like literally in Iraq. The platoon that I was attached to, a lot of country boys, you know, really good, good group of guys. And I, and I was close to them. You know, these, these are my, my comrades in arms, right? And I had taken on a lot of some of the country habits. I started like dipping tobacco. It's like, so I can identify with them. You know, we were listening to the same kind of music and all that. And then it's like, we're, we're out on a mission. And then, you know, he's like, yeah, we're, I'm going to go, we're going to kill some hajis. The term haji is a derogatory term for Arabs, especially Muslims. It was first coined by U.S. military forces during the Iraq invasion that year. And then it's like, wait, 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 wait. You know, like, I, I, and then you, you go out and you see people are living at a lower standard of living. People are living in poverty. You know, you see the butkas, you, know, you see the men with the beard. You see people that really could theoretically be someone that you see at a family gathering, right? or at a wedding or something like that, or at the mosque. And you can really, you know, relate to both sides. And you're, you're there in a Humvee with, with an M16, right? And with one group who's like, who has, for the most part, dehumanized uh, the others, right? And then another group with whom, from, from the physical looks, from their, for their culture, I can, I can relate to and I can empathize with. And it was a lot of times, maybe I could say it was almost like there was like a, like a wall, like a, or like a, a sheet of glass between myself and like that other world, you know. Whereas I could see it and I could relate to it, but I, just, I, I couldn't touch it. I don't know. It's it was weird. Cognitive dissonance is, is is it's a good way to describe a lot of times what I what I felt. I can't imagine what it would have been like to be a Muslim American soldier. It seems to me the epitome of the conflicted identity on Rania's scale, like conflicted and in a literal conflict at the same time. Before the Iraq War had begun. I found myself at a restaurant where this Marine was talking about how much he wanted to die a glorious death on the battlefield, how he missed his tours in Afghanistan. And I told him, bro, you really sound like a suicide bomber right now, which made some people laugh nervously, but mostly led to an awkward silence. No surprise, I was the only non-white person in the room, but it was the first time in a long time, maybe ever, that I had felt comfortable making other people uncomfortable maybe I was starting to move away from that conflicted identity Rania was talking about. Being a pretty privileged suburban kid for the early part of my life allowed me to pretend I could distance myself from politics, even when they were right in my face. However, as the post-9-11 shitstorm continued in my life and all over the country, things started to come into focus. On February 15th of 2003, 
my whole family hopped on a tour bus that left from our mosque in Massachusetts with a bunch of other families headed for New York City to join almost a million-strong, peaceful anti-Iraq war protest. My sister Nuna was 12 at the time. Yes, because I have a very specific memory of that protest. Tell me about it. So, I remember us, like, everyone got together... And then I remember one point we hit a corner and all the police was there to yeah. stop the protest and they were on horses. And I remember Amma was holding my hand and the police was like coming at us on horses and she held her ground and was like, we're not moving. And I was like, there's a giant. I don't know if she said it, but she wouldn't move. I must have been by my dad at that point, because while I totally remember the horses charging and Nuna being scared, I definitely don't remember my mom's part in it. Stopping the horses like this with my hand because she was so scared that I didn't want the horse to like come that near that she would really be because she was saying oh my god she was screaming and I was just like doing this to the horse to go back it's a really amazing almost cinematic image and it was this giant horse of the policeman and I remember thinking of that like what are they gonna run us over like what's the plan with this like why is this happening and I would like to go home. And the horses were coming and I peed my pants. <gasps> yes. Wow. And I didn't tell anyone because I was scared and everything was happening around us. And the horses were there. And then finally we ended up like walking away. And then we ended up going to a pizza place and I just sat in my filth. And I was like, oh this my is God. Just a horrible day. And to this day, I'm still terrified of horses. And I also still to this day don't like going into big crowds. I remember feeling really angry that they would charge at my sister like that and that the NYPD was trying its best to suppress a really peaceful and beautiful demonstration. They were part of this machine all around me that I thought I'd been ignoring all these years, but had actually been chipping away inside at me piece by piece, with every overt or passing comment about Muslims, every question about my identity or my loyalty, and the constant barrage of media about what America should do about those evil people who were out to get us. According to one researcher, 36 million people across the globe took part in almost 3,000 protests against the Iraq War. 3,000! It's said that these were the most expansive peace protests before any war, and I'm proud to have been there. I'm sure many American Muslims were proud as well. This was one of the first times many of them came out en masse since 9-11. It's definitely something I'll never forget. And being there in that New York City crowd had a big influence on the direction my life would eventually take. Don't stay at home in your living room. Watching this massacre unfold on TV, we must act as if the future depends on it because it does. The Iraq war officially ended in 2011, and we recently officially lost the Afghanistan war to the Taliban. But still, America's war on terror continues. Right now, there are a number of other wars and military operations initiated by the United States that fall under the War on Terror in places like Syria and Pakistan. Places where, a lot of times, the U.S. military uses drone strikes that kill not only their intended targets, but many innocent civilians as well. Some analysts say the War on Terror isn't winding down. It's actually expanding. And even worse, countries like Russia and China have co-opted the term, using the vague war on terror terminology and framework to justify the persecution of minority groups and political and cultural enemies. We know this from not only intelligence, but from the history of military conflict in Afghanistan. It's been one of initial success 
followed by long years of floundering and ultimate failure. We're not going to repeat that mistake. According to a November 2019 report from the Costs of War Initiative from Brown and Boston Universities, since 2001, the U.S. has spent roughly $6 trillion on the War on Terror in more than 80 countries. While the death toll from the September 11th attacks was around 3,000, almost 800,000 people have died in post-9-11 wars, including countless civilians, journalists, and other so-called collateral damage. Another 37 million have been displaced, and an untold number have mental, emotional, or physical disabilities because of this war on terror. It begs the question, what is America's endgame? Part of me wonders what might have happened if I enlisted in the military like Bashir did to try and fix myself, like I've heard from many folks who are directionless in life or going through inner turmoil. Bashir and I definitely had one thing in common, though. I always kind of had this, this nostalgia for Pakistan, and I, I just felt like I wanted to, to do something for there. And, 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 and you know, the, the, that emptiness that you kind of feel. So that, that, that's really what, what, what drew me to, to go to Pakistan. Like I like to say, it was kind of like a, there was like this, this voice inside my heart that's saying, like, you, you need to go back, you know? And go back he did. While he was in the military, Bashir got into martial arts, and... After he finished up his duty, he decided to head to Pakistan and set up the country's first MMA fighting league spearheaded by his organization called Shaheen Academy. Their mission is to share this proactive path to mental and spiritual health with men, women, and children that might not otherwise have access to it and who are often struggling through the harsh realities of living in a developing country. Bashir himself became a world-renowned champion fighter, but his victories go deeper. I, I think it really helped me uh, resolve a lot of these kind of these conflicting feelings of identity, you know, because, you know, when you, when, when I went and then after time I realized, Oh, okay, I'm an American, you know, it's, it's weird. It's like going back to Pakistan, right. To connect with my roots made me realize that, and maybe more comfortable that I'm an American, like the, the irony of that situation, that, that going to Pakistan to become a Pakistani maybe more comfortable being like, I'm an American, I'm an American Pakistani, I can belong in both worlds, I'm culturally an American, I have a, a history and a lineage and a, and, a, and, a, and a part of my culture uh, that's going to remain with me. It was going to take a couple more years of juggling all these different pieces of who I thought I was supposed to be before things slowly started to get better. And unfortunately, for a lot of American Muslims, there would be even darker days ahead on our own soil. Next time on King of the World. I was pushed up against the wall. I was frisked, searched, handled in a rough manner, something that has never happened to me in my life. Thanks for listening to today's episode. We'd love to know what you think and hear about your experiences post 9-11. We're using a tool called Pod Inbox, which allows us to hear directly from you. Visit podinbox.com slash kingoftheworld to send us an audio message directly, some of which we'll play on future episodes. We'll have a link to that in the show notes. King of the World is a production of Rafelion Media. Today's show was produced by me and Asad Butt, with sound design and sound mixing by Mark Anato. 
Lindsay Gamble is our associate producer. We had production help from Isabel Havens, Mona Baloch, and Erica Reif. Theme song by me, with production help, mixing, and mastering by Nick Zampiello. Original music by Simon Hutchinson. Additional voiceover by Dr. Sabine Chaudhry. Special thanks to Bashir Ahmed, Dr. Huma Gupta, and Rania Mustafa. We'll have links in the show notes to learn more about each of them. And of course, thanks again to my family, Amma, Aga, Mariam, and Nuna. Thanks again for listening. I'm Shah Jahan Khan.